0: The best of Twin Peaks Unwrapped, starring John Bernardi, Barry Gifford, John Neff, Francine the Lucid Dream, and Schaefer the Dark Lord as The Pink Room, Scott, John, Brett, Chris, and Bino as The Bookhouse Boys, Sherilyn Fenn, Josh Minton, Bob Ingalls, with special guest John Carroll Lynch, writer and co-creator Mark Frost, and the executive producer of Twin Peaks, Sabrina Sutherland. And now your host, Scott Ryan.
1: This is DJ Scott Ryan and you're listening to KTPU 25.3 on the old AM dial coming to you live from White Sands New Mexico. It's August 5th, 4:30 a.m. in the morning, right here in lovely 1956. And we've got a packed show for you this morning. I know all you kids have been sending me letters wanting to hear that song My Prayer by The Platters. To be honest, with you. I'm a little sick of it. Every time I hear it, I get this tingle up the back of my spine as if, you know, I could just rip my head off when I hear that song. But I promise you we'll play it. Just hold on. We'll play it at the end. We've got a lot of great guests here. When it's this time in the morning, who are you going to have guiding you through your radio dial? Well, it's me, the Blue Rose of Radio. We're happy to have you. And we're going to have our first guest, John Bernardi, from the 25-year years later web page webpage never heard of a web page before it's 1956 i don't know i don't know these crazy kids he's talking about his earthquake theory i'm not sure what an earthquake theory is i remember in 1945 i was around here and i'm telling you There was an earthquake. I'm not sure what they were doing out in the desert. Government says it's fine, and you know, we can always trust our government. Of course, we can. Let's listen in on John Bernardi and his earthquake theory.
2: Recently, on Sparkwood in 21 podcast, they read some feedback. They had their own uh, Secret History of Twin Peaks discussion about the book, and they had some feedback from you near the end of the podcast.
3: There's a theory that I have for the time discrepancies that nobody else seems to be talking about yet, and I would mm. love to be able to just put that out there for people. It's, it's a section under earthquakes. Leaning into science for a moment, the BBC Science Hour played a segment within weeks of the Secret Histories release with geologist Ross Stein, who was explaining the system of fault lines that were creating a large number of earthquakes uh, suddenly wreaking havoc across towns in Italy. In the specific situation Stein spoke of, he said the tectonic plate Italy called home was being compressed until about a million years ago. Now it's being stretched, so its faults are trying to figure out how to do something different than it was born to do, and they're reorganizing. He said the lines were little broken shards of faults that haven't been organized by repeated earthquakes into a long, continuous, smooth fault. So that means if you jostle one fault line, you tend to move the others around it, and no one fault is able to rupture for a very long distance and produce a very large earthquake. So we get these little groups or families of moderate-sized events. Reread everything Stein just said, but instead of fault lines, substitute with the name of someone who's had an interaction with a lodge like Parsons or even Briggs or Cooper. And every time you hear earthquake, substitute with time quake. So every time one of us meets a lodge denizen or we reach into one another's worlds, our realities scrape against each other at a proverbial fault line and it becomes charged. Uh, Enough meetings like that and the line between our realities will slip and a reality quake shakes up time. I'd have to say the original main shock in Twin Peaks, and the reason I'm so keen on this earthquake metaphor in the first place, occurred when volcanic activity, you know, fire-based volcanic activity, in the Twin Peaks area formed Blue Pine and Whitetail Mountains. Germano Radio's Mark Givens is fond of mentioning the Michener-style book Frost wanted to write as early as 1990 that would begin with the formation of the mountains and focus on the weird electrical energy that settled between them. So, I feel good saying this was on Frost's mind the entire time he was writing secret history.
2: A lot so, to unpack. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah. You're arguing that we're not saying this is an alternate reality and this is not like, we're not going with the idea that it's um, a fake dossier. I don't think any of that could happen because if it was one, I mean, if it was an alternate history,
3: we'd have one dossier. Hmm. Or, it, or it would somehow be able to travel across like so many multiple timelines it would just get too confusing. But I figure with the way if you look at it just like from a like a metaphysical geographic event, I say later on, it's kind of like, you know, if you skip a rock across a water and like you see a ripple form, it's like the events that are most important are kind of at the top of those ripples as Mm. it fans out. And all the other events like, you know, Norma's mom, things like that. They get kind of pushed or rewritten, and you know it's like the the most important things are around the point of impact. So like wherever the character was at a main shock, such as like oh I don't know Laura Palmer's murder, all those facts around it are basically set in stone, mm. and you can kind of move things around however you feel like. Like if you're say a writer who doesn't want to exclusively uh, adhere to canon. Religiously, <laughs> but you're the kind of person to meticulously go back and figure out exactly what kind of pieces are in this watch called Twin Peaks that you're working with. I think Frost is both like really fascinated by being able to rewrite things, but also in a way that it's not going to like counteract anything. I I think the way the earthquake metaphor can work. It, it allows, like, canon inconsistencies just to kind of sit next to each other, like they do in the Secret History dossier. You know, basically, it, it, you think of it like the Star Wars trilogies. You know, you've got the original one that uh, you guys and I grew up with, mm-hmm. and then you've got the special editions, but if you take their DVDs and put them right next to each other, you can fit them all into the same .ca.
2: I think a great metaphor you made was kind of like the solar system, right? That, like, they can all, there can be planets and everybody can kind of hang out and be in the same gravity, but...
3: Yeah, yeah, like each... Each individual product, you know, like uh, uh, Laura Palmer's Diary could be, like, considered a planet on its own, and uh, TV Twin Peaks can, and Mm. Secret History can, and Fire Walk With Me, especially. Like, that thing used to just boggle my mind so Mm. much I wouldn't even know how to talk about it, so I just did. Everybody thought that I wasn't, you know, that that I just hated Fire Walk With Me, but it's like what everybody's doing right now with Secret History. Mm. It's just hard to rationalize it next to everything.
2: What would create this? Earthquake that time would almost be rewritten.
3: Okay, Jack Parsons, for example, you know, it's like he, he does all that Thelma magic in the lodge where the lumber came from Twin Peaks area and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And, you know, it's like he he's a uh, he's trying to summon basically a force which i'm assuming comes from the lodge i mean i know the lodges are barely talked about in this book at all but hmm. i think the whole book is like literally every single page is about our interaction our world's interaction with the lodges world uh-huh. and like the, fric- the friction in between so like you, you think of our world as one tectonic plate and you think of the lodge world as another tectonic plate when jack parsing ripped between our world's that's one big, huge, frictional plate slippage or whatever whatever the actual term is. The repercussions happen from there, like Margaret and the, the two guys getting abducted as children. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's in the 1927 article that Andrew Packard wrote, and it's in the 1947 article that uh, Robert Jacoby wrote. But, you know, you, you figure the abduction— is also an interaction with the Lodges. So, like, that's kind of friction between our worlds when we interact with them. So it ends up becoming a foreshock and an aftershock of the Parsons event, which also happened in 47. Hmm. And Roswell Roswell ends up being an aftershock. I, I've got an idea that he unleashed Bob right then. I mean, not, not Roswell Parsons. Hmm. So, I mean, all, all this stuff is obviously just mostly from inference.
4: <laughs> yeah. So,
3: I mean, I, I could be totally disproven, and I totally expect it. I mean, the, the way I think of this whole thing is I was solving for Robert Jacobi, and I found number 14 in the answer book.
4: <laughs> you know,
3: like, I, I, I think there's so many different ways that this can work. And, you know, I'm, I'm just throwing it out there just like anybody else. But I, I think the earthquake thing is a good metaphor that actually is
0: true. We will be right back after these messages. Starting positions.
5: The first Journey Through Twin Peaks concluded two and a half years ago, and ever since then, viewers and subscribers have been asking if I plan to cover The Return. The answer is yes. Sometime in the first half of 2018, I'll debut parts five and six of Journey Through Twin Peaks. Part five will dwell on the build-up to the Showtime series, make a deeper exploration of both Lynch's and Frost's work, survey the fan culture that kept Twin Peaks alive for 25 years, and broaden our scope to include the contributions of collaborators who weren't included in my first series. The final chapter of Part 5 will survey the 18 hours chronologically, as they unfolded week to week over the summer of 2017. Meanwhile, I have a ton of other Twin Peaks material, old and new, that you can explore, not just on my YouTube channel, but also on my site, lostinthemovies.com. I'm planning to reboot and relaunch an extensive character series, written entries, analyzing each character who appears in the 50 or so hours of Twin Peaks for more than 10 minutes. There will be 86 entries, building from the smallest to the largest role. And as I prepare the project this fall, you can also explore my Twin Peaks archives, including written analysis, visual tributes, video essays, and podcast appearances. This summer, I wrote about each episode after it aired, so you can also find coverage, of Season 3, or at least my initial impressions of it. So take this video not only as an announcement of future work, but an invitation to get lost in the movies and, of course, in Twin Peaks. See you there.
6: (sighs) What's wrong?
7: Oh, I'm
8: just really tired these days.
7: I know how you feel. Have you tried coffee?
8: Nah, this isn't the kind of tired coffee can fix.
7: Well, what about
9: Sparkle? Sparkle? What's that? Sparkle's the new name in waking up with a charge. Available in powder or pill form, Sparkle has a real kick that keeps you going no matter what the day has in store. Based on the newest innovations in biomedical engineering from the Far East, it will give you that dose of energy you need
7: to sparkle throughout your day. Sparkle may have some side effects,
5: including impaired
10: mental judgment, rashes, hallucinations, travel to parallel dimensions, sudden intercorporeal coin appearances, ominous ethereal whooshing, occasional backwards talking, and the sense that one is beating themselves. And the sense that one is beating themselves. In rare cases, users may experience zombie-like behavior, including bleeding from the mouth and other orifices. Users should refrain from operating a motor vehicle until they feel comfortable using Sparkle. Always check to ensure Sparkle won't interact with any other medication you may be taking. Not recommended for pregnant or nursing women. Check your local Sparkle distributor to ensure Sparkle is right for you.
0: Wow!
8: This Sparkle's really something! I almost feel like I'm going to another place altogether.
11: Hello, this is Michael Horse from Twin Peaks, and you're listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped.
2: White Sands Radio. So we're on the phone with Barry Gifford. What was the process for you, writing uh, Lost Highway with David Lynch? Well, I mean, the fact
11: is that David and I, we actually worked on a couple of other projects prior to that. You know, obviously there was hotel room, and mm. obviously there was my consultation with Wild at Heart, and then, you know, they had approached me, he and producers had approached me about, you know, writing other material, you know, as feature film, and we did a couple of things, but they, you know, didn't get done, or for one reason or another. Yeah. In any event, then... David came to me and he said, I haven't made a movie in four and a half years and I want you to write it with me. Mm. And that's what happened. Uh, We just uh, began, he had optioned my book Night People and had that for about a year and he really wanted to make a movie out of that. And I said, you know, well, you know, we're a couple of people who are capable of having halfway of an original thought. (laughs) So why don't we just do something original and not have to be tied to a, a text? That, you know, that already exists, right? right? So he said, oh, but I really like these couple of lines from the book and this and that. And so I said, well, let's take them. Let's use those lines, yeah. which we did,
4: huh.
11: and which included the title. And, uh, you know, where one of the women says the other, we're just a couple of Apache's you know, riding wild on the lost highway, hmm. and toward the end, w- which eventually went into the voice of Mr. Eddie, saying, "You know, you and me, Mr. Reekin, out really out ugly them some bitches, can't we?" Yeah. <laughs> and so, so the thing is, those lines, you know, found themselves in the movie in an important way. And so that's what we did. We just created something new under the sun. And one interesting thing about it is that it has been and still is the subject of classes in universities. Mm, yeah. You know, from, I, I, I mean, I've been asked to speak at various times at basically at film schools, like in Rome and in at Stanford just last year. You know, they have a whole class. And in fact, my youngest son, took a class in Lost Highway at UC <laughs> San Diego years ago.
4: Wow.
11: You know, which was taught by a French professor who didn't know that my son was in the class, actually. Wow, that's funny. He got an A. And later, when he found out, he came to my son and asked him if he could show this paper that he'd written about it to me and to David or to Midas or something. Which, yeah. you know That didn't, that didn't happen.
4: Uh, but in any
11: event, we weren't interested in that sort of thing. But right. in any case, that movie uh, has you know, maintained itself in, I think, Mm -hmm. a very important and interesting way and certainly has a great following that amazed me. If David always repeats the story that a unit publicist came up with this, and I think it did happen almost simultaneously, in fact. Uh. But what happened was we'd written the first draft of the screenplay, and then I had to take uh, a couple of weeks out because I had to go to Spain and elsewhere to do promotion for a book or a couple of books. And uh, when I was on the plane, I happened to sit next to this woman who was a psychiatrist and Mm. she was teaching at Stanford at the Mm. time. And she's a Swiss woman. Her name was Manuela Kogan. She really was unfamiliar with my work or with David Lynch's work. She didn't watch TV. She didn't go to movies. She didn't read novels. She'd asked me what I did. And, you know, we just had this conversation. We were flying from San Francisco to New York. And where I was going to catch a plane to Barcelona, I described this tour, you know, what we were dealing with, with the plot of, you know, of what became Lost Highway. Mm. And uh, I said, do you think this is feasible? Does this make sense to you in some way? And she said, oh, yes, what you're describing is a psychogenic fugue, a fugue state where somebody, you know, is overwhelmed by a particular problem and develops this condition where they can only escape but within their own mind. Mm. So at the airport, at JFK, I called Lynch, told him what happened, and that this woman had come up with, the, you know, this analysis. And I, I know this really did happen. Now, it could be that Uh, The unit publicist at some point in there also came up with this. I'm not sure uh, of the nature of of that event, but in any event, that's what I know happened with me and my than repeating it to Lynch. And in fact, we invited this woman psychiatrist, professor from Stanford at the time. She's, I think she's back in Switzerland long since. We invited her to the premiere. That's great. That's awesome. And she came. And she came. Wow. wow.
8: That
2: is so She was
11: great. Manuela <laughs> Kogan. And, and she said this was, you know, it was, she got a huge kick out of it. It was a great thrill yeah. for her. And she was a delightful and brilliant woman. And uh, that really did happen. What influenced you? What influenced me? That's a good question. I I think it was really organic. It was an organic situation. And I know this is an abused and overworked term these days, organic. But it did just grow in this Mm. sense because the screenplay really went through a number of changes in the sense that in the beginning, in fact, it was quite comedic. Mm. And so we didn't really know where we were going to end up with it. But it took its own form. I mean, David had the story uh, that he had had in his mind for some time about someone receiving videotapes of their life and they mm-hmm. didn't know who was doing the videotapes like that. And so that was there, but that was rather vague, but interesting. Of course, we adopted that and integrated it into the film. We had a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a lot of things. But, you know, I'll tell you something write something it's uh based on the characters it's really i let the characters take over the mm, characters yeah. have lives of their own and i let them go through the paces you know mm. and we follow them on on their story i don't start with ideas mm. i i never do I and mean, it's not like i mean it, there's no rules
1: in any of this <laughs> That was Barry Gifford, the co-writer of Lost Highway and author of Wild at Heart. And this is the Blue Rose of Radio. Scott Ryan, and you're listening to KTPU 25.3 White Sands Radio. I'm not sure what it's looking like out there. It's pretty Dark and I, I, for a second there, I thought I saw Abe Lincoln, and then I'm like, "What am I? Crazy Eisenhower's president? I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I maybe need some coffee. That that fixes everything." I hear. Our next segment is with musician extraordinaire John Neff, who was in the studio, and he talked about Blue Bob. Blue Bob. I guess that's okay. It would just be a green that Bob really is afraid of. I mean, I'm telling you, you get a glove, you put some green on it, that'll kill any demons that are there. Not that there's any demons hanging around here. I think I'm pretty safe in a radio station in White Sands, New Mexico. What could possibly happen? I actually heard some rumors that John Neff is going to produce Elvis Presley's next album. So that should be something. We'll see if he talks about that or if he just stays on the Blue Bob conversation.
12: It's funny. David and I both played music on Jocelyn Montgomery's album, Lux Vivens, which came out in 1998. And Dave played guitar on that for the first time. he used it. He laid it on his lap. And he'd bang on the guitar, I'd, I'd put it in a certain detuning so that both strings, formed a chord, and uh, he would bang on it and then use the vibrato bar, tune it way down and make mm. special effects with it. He enjoyed that so much that we got him a couple of guitars. He had borrowed one for that record. We got him a couple of guitars, and he wanted to keep experimenting. When the album was done, he was sad. He said, I want to keep experimenting in music. And that's what these all were. They were experiments to him. He wanted to make drum tracks out of machine noises. So, for instance, on Pink Mountain Range, on the Blue Bob album, there's an 80-ton metal press that is the kick drum, 8,000-volt spark is the snare drum. A printing press is the hi-hat. And I would make these drum patterns and loop them. And then David and I would play live to them. And then he'd hand me lyrics out of a box, an old shoebox full of typewritten pages, poems that he wrote 25 years ago. And uh, he would hand me a poem and say, this is the lyrics for this song. And the first time he did it, I thought, well, I'll go home and work on a melody for this thing at night and then come back the next day and sing the song. And he says, no, no, no. Right now, I don't want you to think about it. I'd want you to just go in and do it. Wow. And so on, I think, three or four of the songs, he handed me his director's megaphone and wow. wanted me to sing into a $10,000 mic with this megaphone to give it like a sound of a small speaker in a box. Hmm. And then he'd feed me delays in my headphones so that I'd stutter. And it was really a, uh, quite an experiment. I sat beside him for over eight years, almost nine years. Hmm. And he hmm. likes to talk. So we'd tell stories a lot during the course of working. And, uh, and of course, he takes a lot of smoke breaks. So we'd talk during his smoke breaks. One day he turned around to me and he says, you know, we know more about each other than our wives do. Aww. <laughs> The song
13: is called No Stars, and it originally uh, started life as a Blue Bob song that gave birth to this song. We had done a song in Mulholland Drive called Pretty 50s, which was a light and airy kind of whimsical set of chords that evoked the 50s. Right after that, I got an idea for a heavy 50s song It was real dark. And so I wrote the chords to this thing and uh, played it on the guitar guitar, and David really liked it. And we didn't know what we were going to do with it, but we decided to develop it. David was inspired to write some words for it and thought that it might be ideal for Rebecca. Rebecca came over, and David gave her the words, and she started singing a melody immediately to it that we really liked. She took an, uh, some of the English words and turned them into Spanish and uh, incorporated it as a bilingual song. And then she wanted this whole dreamy ending. So I had to change the ending chorus to just go back and forth and be no stars all the way out. And we recorded it the next day. Wow. It was really amazing.
4: That's something. And
13: I put the drums down and then Dave and I both played electric guitar on it and I played the guitar orchestra on it. Dave did the lyrics himself. I wrote the music, and Rebecca wrote the vocal melody and the Spanish lyrics. It's an album called Love Hurts, Love Heals, and it was released in November of 2011. And uh, I mastered the album for her. It's a really nice record. We put No Stars on it, and I remastered No Stars for that album. So it sounds a little different than it does on the TV show because the TV show is an unmastered version. So it's definitely worth looking into, because it's quite the experience. The money was minimal, but I'm just happy to see the song come to life. John,
2: I know the answer, but uh, we, we see Moby with a guitar in the show. Moby didn't have anything to do with this, right?
13: He had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was just a, a TV band.
2: You've been watching it. What did you think of, of the new series, John?
13: When I saw the cast list announced, it came to my mind that what David was doing was making a magnum opus, or his grand unified field, of all of his work. And I do believe that that's what the series is becoming. It's definitely his magnum opus. It's an 18-hour movie Yeah, that's
14: just stunning. We will be right back after these messages. The Blue Rose magazine is a lively, full-color publication that offers discussion, debate, news, and analysis about Twin Peaks, David Lynch and Mark Frost's fascinating series, Old and New. Every four months, The Blue Rose will examine Showtime's new season of Twin Peaks, it will also cover the original classic episodes and the feature film, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Expect essays that delve deep into Twin Peaks, interviews with cast and crew, reports on current Twin Peaks events, and a regular column about the music of Angelo Badalamenti. Join co-editors, Scott Ryan and John Thorne, as they guide you through this singular, unforgettable work. Issue one presents an in-depth review of Mark Frost's new book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, A report on the U.K. Twin Peaks Festival, an interview with screenwriter Robert Engels, an informative glimpse at the remastering of the Fire Walk With Me soundtrack, a heartfelt tribute to Catherine Coulson, the log lady, and much more.
9: Hey, this is Charlotte Stewart, and you're listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. White Sands Radio.
2: We're on the phone with Francine, the Lucid Dream, and Schaefer, the Dark Lord. I had gone and
10: seen a Pink Room show as a civilian, and uh, afterward, I just, I basically threw myself at Francine and said, I just want to host this, I love Twin Peaks so much, I love David Lynch so much, I'll do anything, I'll write a song for it, I'll dress up, yeah, I I was just, I was, I was really, really trying to um, come bearing gifts to, like, (laughs) to to kind of prove myself in the show. So I I wrote that song for the first time that I hosted and now I just, I perform it every time we do the show. And then Francine made a movie.
6: I mean, that song is such a gift because it's very rare that you can find a host who, I mean, is talented as a shaper but also can write and perform his own music and then to create a song that is so specifically tailored to our show mm. um it was amazing so basically he wrote that song and then he was hired for every single show ever since my
14: head. i guess i'm always left with guesses none the people that i meet can seem to answer questions there are very long clauses in the dialogue and i by a very pretty girl i'm pretty sure she's gonna die it's like it's nighttime. all the time get in the car my life's a david lynch movie which i'm the star mission accomplished (laughs) ladies and gentlemen please welcome to the stage special
2: agent dale bartholomew cooper and see, there's so many, there were so many great acts that night, and one of them for me was uh, that I really liked was uh, Legs Malone, who did uh, the Cooper, <laughs> yeah. her, her, her fixation with a donut. I thought it was wonderful. I thought she was really into character, and really, it was it was a fun piece. Each one of these performers make their own act, or is it, how does this come about, Francine? Yes,
6: no, burlesque is one of those unique performance arts where, I mean, yes, there's a certain amount of casting involved because um, we want to bring a lot of variety to the show, but everyone puts together their own acts. Everyone, for the most part, makes their own costumes and choreographs their own thing and, you know, sometimes edits their own music together. Mm. Um, it's a very, like, do-it-yourself sort of art form. Of course, we help each other, too. Some people, you know, are better at costumes or better at choreography uh, or whatnot. But, um, but no, they, this is the thing that is so beautiful, but burlesque, and I, I think in particular David Lynch burlesque, is that all these wacky weirdos have come up with the crazy ideas they put on stage themselves. That is Obviously, awesome. Obviously, with the help of an inspiration of David Lynch. The
10: cast that Francine has booked over the years, you wouldn't know how few people are in the core cast of the show because so many of them have a half-dozen David Lynch characters that, <laughs> and they're all total shapeshifters. It's like
12: it's this whole
10: universe is represented in, like, you know a dozen to 20 performers.
6: I think that's the fun thing about doing David Lynch or like specifically Twin Peaks burlesque is that there's so many different characters and so many different themes and you can have an entire show and I mean we did that huge show that you saw and that was still just a tiny selection of all the acts that we've had wow. in the show over the years. You know, there are some really funny ones that you know, we couldn't even fit into the show. There's some, like, really dark ones too. <laughs> we didn't get to fit in the show, unfortunately.
4: <laughs> the
10: amount of time it took to change costumes weren't an issue. I feel like Francine could book <laughs> a, a two-hour <laughs> room show of just her act.
2: Wow. wow. <laughs> you
6: have a count of... I counted this. I recently tweeted this. I came up... And this is not including, like, the different versions I've done, you know, because I've done different versions with, like, live bands and stuff like that. Uh-huh. But just... The basic acts that I've done just for Twin Peaks burlesque is at least 10. So that's wow. a full wow. show. I could yes. do Yeah, I started counting all the David Lynch burlesque acts that I have. It's got to be over 20 at this point in my life. Wow. <laughs> that's
8: something. That crazy. And I'll see
2: you. And Francine, the highlight for me was you singing the sycamore trees. Ah, oh, what a treat I heard. Ah. Oh. When she performs that number, that's uh, always a show highlight
10: for me, too. I've always loved that song. I mean, ever since ever since the finale in uh, 92, I, uh, I've I loved that song, and um, I've never gotten to see it performed live by anybody. It's always a treat when I get to see do that number. Listen, Francine, I don't know if I've mm-hmm. ever told you that, but I love seeing that number so much.
6: I didn't know that. Thank you so much. That means the world to me because, to be totally frank with you and all your listeners, doing slow singing acts are... Probably the one thing that terrifies me the most. It's my first Twin Peaks burlesque act. It's my first David Lynch burlesque act. It's the first act of the Pink Room Burlesque when we first started doing the show. And I took a chance on it because I love... Jimmy Scott's version of it. I actually got to meet Jimmy Scott when he came to do a very intimate show at Dwayne Park a number of years ago. Wow. Since I got to meet him before he sadly passed away. That song is just so haunting and beautiful and I just try to do my best with it because <laughs> I admire Jimmy Scott and his version of it so much. That means a lot to me, so thank you very much and I'm glad you guys could see it.
10: Now it's after midnight and it's uh, April 1st. Don't trust anything. <laughs> Less of all your creepy fucking friends. But I'd also like to send a shout out uh, we've got a couple of friends of the show who are celebrating birthdays tonight. First of all, Ben from Twin Peaks Unwrapped Podcast.
5: Happy, happy birthday, year, brother. I'd
6: also like to send a shout out to photographer Liz Velick. It made me very happy that both of you were there at midnight and you both had birthdays mm-hmm. and you're both, two of the biggest Twin Peaks fans I know.
2: <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very was cool. Awesome. It's very special. Well, I, had a, I had a really good time. I was gleeful. I was very happy. I think this is probably the best birthday I've ever had. You can't, be, you can't beat be- that man. <laughs> that is awesome. But you guys really put on a great show. It really is. I would recommend to anybody so, to go see The Pink Room.
10: That you know, And that also means a lot because obviously you are super fans mm. of the world of Twin Peaks. You yeah. know, you've also hung on to your fandom for 25 years, you have committed time and energy of your art, continuing to keep it alive. When fans like you have this amazing time at the show, it means like, oh, well then all of those little details and those little, those little deep cut references, they all landed on the on the absolute intended audience. And then sure uh, fandom at time can be a kind of a tricky thing where it's so passionate, but it can also be so very unforgiving in a way that like unforgiving quality seems to embolden one's fandom. Oh, mm-hmm. this they missed this one detail. That that key prop was in the wrong shape because mm-hmm. it makes you feel like you're more into it. So when people who are are like really passionate fans come and then go on about, and then say things in front of an audience, like, it was best birthday ever. Yeah. Well, then it feels like they all these weirdos did a really good job. Aww.
1: That was Schaefer the Dark Lord and Francine the Lucid Dream from the Twin Peaks burlesque. I love burlesque. I saw Jolson do some burlesque show down on Main Street the other night. It was great. This is the Blue Rose of Radio, Scott Ryan, and you're listening to KTPU 25.3 on your AM dial. So I want to give you a little traffic report. Got a strange call from a woman, pulled over to a payphone and just screamed in my ear the whole time, screaming about some sort of dark figure crossing the street, Please, people, don't call in here. We have professionals to create the news. We would not just take news from someone on the street and then air it. You know, this this is radio. This is important stuff here. So please... Don't call in. I'm sure the roads are fine. There are not figures out on the road. This next segment was when we took the show on the road to the Roadhouse in Washington State, and we talked about episode 12 of The Return with the Bookhouse Boys. I heard that when they recorded this, it was very, very quiet, and there was no outside noise at all, because people are respectful when people are recording an interview. Take a listen. Ben, we're at the Twin Peaks Festival,
15: live upstairs in the Roadhouse. This is
2: part 12, called Let's Rock.
15: All right, so this is Brett. (laughs) I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We had a lot of exposition and dialogue and information about the Blue Rose, which we have not had Ever up until this point, that was like a huge download of information for us. Um, I thought it was great. I have to watch it again because we were all buzzing so much with excitement and uh, really pick apart what they were talking about. But that was amazing for me as a fan that's wanted that information for so long. Going into the season, thinking, will they address the blue rose actually in dialogue? Is this just going to continue to be a you know kind of a thematic metaphor? Are we actually going to get something? And that that was it. So. That was gratifying for me. This is Scott
1: Ryan from the Blue Rose Magazine. This is John Thorne from the Blue Rose Magazine. And we're here today to talk about a very sad death in the Twin Peaks family, the death of John Thorne's dream theory that passed away at the ripe young age of 27.
14: The dream theory did not die tonight. Oh, it's dead, my friend. Yes, I saw it. Give me a chance to respond. I just wanted to (laughs) say yes, sir, that it died. If you go back and look at the text that I wrote, I never claimed that Chet Desmond was a figment of Cooper's imagination, just he dreamed that sequence with Chet Desmond, that Chet Desmond, since he failed to solve the Teresa Banks uh, murder, that maybe another agent could have done that. And whether Chet Desmond was real or an actual living being, either one was possible. You know what's cute about this
1: is when someone... <laughs> but you know what
14: else? I'm going to tell you what else. Yeah, okay? Yes, you yeah, tell I've elaborating. The dream theory it could very well be wrong, and I'd be happy to admit that it's wrong. But I think Lynch is toying with ideas that come from um, the Hindu religion, from the idea of um, quantum physics, and the idea that there's an interconnectivity between everyone. And... Um, it's possible that what we, we learn tonight is that there's an interconnectivity between all of these agents that are part of this Blue Rose team. And it's real curious to me how um, Gordon Cole will look at um, Albert Rosenfield and almost communicate without words as if they are the, the sum of their parts, okay? That was
1: really well put, but let's get back to the fact how the dream theory is dead because for years you have said that Chet is a apparition of Cooper, that he is taking the place of him. Not that he's a real person. We even had this argument in the Mark Cross How did it die? Well, when they said that Chet worked on a Blue Rose case, yeah, okay. which we saw. I right. mean, we've now seen them, so right. it's... It's gone buddy and and uh, let's it was a great theory I loved it I miss it but I'm going to go again to its I'm, I'm waiting to hear the, why
14: the theory's wrong
1: when Mark Frost's book came up and yeah. you said this was no. sad when they mentioned his name this was this was causing trouble and now we know he's a, he works on the blue rose so and this is a Blue Rose Task Force, which made me happy. And you know, that
14: was very interesting. I really liked that. Because,
1: I, well, I loved it. I mean, because we're the Blue Rose Task Force, asking people to subscribe at bluerosemag.com and join the Blue Rose Task Force. That's what makes me happy. I don't want us to fight John. Hearing
15: that Albert is the only... That hasn't disappeared. Yeah. yeah. Well, unfortunately, confirming that Chet is still missing. (laughs) This is Chris. I I just have to say that like um, whether you've been a fan of Dougie or not, that one moment was uh, almost made the entire thing worth it. It was hilarious. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That moment (laughs) was uh, the the baseball, the, the game of catch between father and son, but there was no catching
8: involved. We all laughed at that part and then it cut to the mountains and everybody just died laughing again. It was
15: hilarious. Yes. And I also had to think, wow, this scene is just here so we can have starring Kyle McLaughlin at the end.
2: (laughs) I've waited 25 years to see Audrey. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I want to know what happened to her, and I was expecting a lot. And, like... I will say Sharon Fenn's performance was amazing. Yes. I mean she like gave it her all. But it was weird and it was convoluted. It was very weird. And like it's not the way I would have wanted to introduce no or reintroduce Audrey I agree. and it's like, what is going on?
15: Very possible that this is some sort of delusion or mental issue going on. I mean, she didn't seem affected in how she was speaking and moving and acting, but I mean, that can really mess with your head when those kind of things happen.
1: Can I throw out uh, one of my theories about Audrey tonight? Yes, I want to hear your theory about Audrey. So I say what we saw was Invitation to Love. I think Audrey was on Invitation to Love, and we just saw it. It's a show-based... No, 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 it's the, it was part of the episode. It's based on Twin Peaks. That's why she said Audrey, and that's why they said Roadhouse. But it was basically a soap. Yes. And everybody was cheating on everyone, and there were prenups. It was all the things that happened in Invitation to Love. It was just a a newer version.
14: Spencer's theory about the Audrey scene, Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I want to credit Spencer, is that that scene was um, a play-acting scene with Audrey and a potential therapist, that uh, Audrey is in some sort of rehabilitation, that she's got a psychological issue, and that her therapist, that guy, was... um, You know, working through a scenario with her, humoring her, trying to guide her. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a contract that's mentioned at some point, which doesn't seem to be a marriage contract, but something else. Again, uh, when Spencer said that, it seemed to make that seem more important to me.
1: Um, I think that's certainly an idea, and I I actually don't seriously believe
16: that it's invitation to love, but I think it's a cool idea because it was so soapy. So my name's Ben Bino on Twitter, a.k.a. First of all, I've just been having the best time at the Twin Peaks Fest. This is my second festival, and it's just been incredible to be here in Twin Peaks, and to to be able to be in the roadhouse and to watch an episode, uh, a new episode of Twin Peaks, is was just a, a you know a once in a lifetime experience. Um, maybe you know maybe we'll get to do it again. I don't know, but it, I mean when when we started watching it, my eyes filled with tears, um, and to be surrounded with some of the, like the coolest fans, you know, it was just amazing. And and the celebrities and everybody that's there. I've had the time of my life, and uh, and I love you, Ben and Brian. This is my favorite Aww. show. <laughs> I love you too. Uh, it's been yeah, it's been awesome to see you guys here and to You're get to know you. you the first one we it. met. That's right at the um, at the car rental place. We were renting C-Tac. a
8: car, and he's like, "I recognize your voices. Are you Ben and Brian?"
11: And we're like, "We are."
8: And we're renting a car, and it's midnight, but it was great, because you were like, I will talk to you later. Yes. And then we just drove off. I don't want it to end.
2: I'm still processing. It's like, what? We went to the Palmer House, and we went to Renette's Bridge, and we went to, of course, the Double R Diner, and we hang out with all yeah. these
8: celebrities. and it's. I said, let's go to the fest. It's a one-time event. We'll go. I'm here going. It's like getting a tattoo. It's like, you just want more. I just <laughs> want to come back again. Like."
0: We will be right back after these messages. And remember, kids, drink your Ovaltine. Ovaltine is fortified with vitamins and minerals to keep you working hard and playing hard the whole day long.
9: Christmas shopping has never been easier than it is this year at Horn's department store. From our men's and ladies' fashion departments to fine housewares, to gifts for the kids, Horns has everything you need to make this holiday season merry and bright.
17: Peruse our collection of crystal stemware, elegant china in all the most popular patterns, and don't forget our new line of -of one-of-a-kind bespoke teapots imported directly from jolly old England. They make the perfect gift for the most discerning recipients on your gift list. Our selection of European fragrances is the best in the Northwest. Treat your lady friends the loveliest perfumes that make a real statement, whether she prefers forested or fruity scents.
9: Stop in and visit our Christmas tree lot, where you'll find only the best firs and pines for your home and hearth. Every tree is $5, and all proceeds go to the door at home for boys. You'll find everything you need to decorate in our decor department, the most shimmering tinsel, the brightest lights, and a wide selection of tree toppers. From stars to angels.
8: And don't forget, this
17: week only, we're offering free gift wrapping on all purchases over $10.
9: We're also extending our store hours to 9 p.m. It's the perfect solution for you last-minute shoppers.
17: For For the the things things you need, need, the
5: the things things you want, want, and and everything everything in in between, between, visit visit Horns Department Store on the corner of Maple and Snow in downtown Twin Peaks.
18: Hi, I'm Harley Payton, and you're listening to Twin Peaks on
2: White Sands Radio. So we're on the phone with Sherilyn Fenn, who played Audrey in Twin Peaks. Second episode where I had to dance. Well, that very day, David
9: said, Okay, Sherilyn Fenn, Laura, we're rewriting this scene. Get a Mm. cappuccino. He rewrites the scene. I'm panicked. Oh, my God. I already worked with Roy. David's rewriting the scene. What am I going to do? I call Roy. Roy says, Sherilyn, David, don't worry about it. Just do what he says. I'm right. like, oh, okay.
2: <laughs> and it's funny, that's like one of the most memorable scenes just... is you dancing. So I
9: know. Yeah. <laughs> and I was frightened. I'm like, what do you uh... mean I have to dance? I don't want to dance. What am I supposed to So We wrote you a song and you're just going to uh-huh. put it on and you just groove. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I if you look closely enough, my hands are shaking. Uh... I, I was really, I, I felt silly yeah i mean i did it was I so good it was, though. like looking me dancing. no. no that would have been really ugly uh, <laughs>
8: it's so interesting you say that about dancing and you go all the way to the end of season two and you don't even want to be part of the pageant you're like you know i'm gonna make a speech i'm a businesswoman now and your You've character evolved. yeah your your character evolved in a matter of months according to the show it
9: had to do with me from the bottom of my heart I don't want to be the town bathing beauty. Roy and I talked about that. He said, if you're going to be in a parade, you might as well lead it. Mm. They're, do- they're doing what they're trying to do what you're doing. So we're moving in a different direction. Stop stopped wearing sweaters. I got sporties like business little jackets and started just moving in a different direction because mm. they were trying to, you know, it was crazy, you yeah. know, and. We had lost David the second season. Mm. I mean, he wasn't there. Um, David doesn't do things to be weird for the sake of being weird.
4: Right, yeah. Um,
9: That would, again, be like playing sexy instead of just, you know, you're a person, it's sexy when somebody's authentic, and they're mm. just, like, emotional and trying to find their way. That is where Roy really had a hand, where he said, let's move in this direction, yeah. you know. She wants to become a uh, special agent. She's mm. going to show him. Right. And she's now that she has this love to fill the hole, her father never gave her the love. Um, she had purpose. All of a sudden, she had a purpose. Mm. And she saw the way she, you know, it was never explored. I wish it had been more, you know, her brother, her little brother, Johnny, and the way he was treated and why he was that way. And Kyle and I were friends. We didn't have what I would call chemistry. But when Special Agent Dale Cooper and Audrey Horn came together, something happened.
4: Hmm.
9: Okay? Uh, it just did. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point, David said, are you in love with, you know, Kyle? I'm like, my <laughs> God, no. <laughs> I said, no, not even a little, yeah. you know, and not even, no, at all. I said, but Audrey thinks, you know, he's a bee's knees. <laughs> what do you want yeah. me to say? I don't. Something happened, and it was a great thing, and um, life goes on. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. You mentioned clothing earlier. I guess you brought, you wore some of your own clothing on the show?
9: All the time, yeah. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I would have been in really big sweaters, big, <laughs> huge sweaters like the girls in the first episode. Yeah. They had a big one. I'm like, uh-uh. I ran and grabbed my baby pink cashmere antique sweater, which David ruined, by the way because when they put me against the wall with the Norwegians, she kept saying, tighter, tighter, tighter. And they pinned it and wrapped it into a ball behind my back and totally stretched it out. But Uh, it was (laughs) it. Yeah, a lot of the sweaters, the lace top sweater. I mean, a bunch of them were mine.
2: I was just starting to bring in my own stuff. I didn't know that you could even do that. I didn't know you could just say, I'm going to bring my own clothing. You You were the best
8: dressed on the show, definitely.
9: definitely. Well, normally you couldn't, but see, Audrey was barely in it. In the pilot, I don't think anybody knew that that was going to happen at yeah. all. Mm. At all. So they're like, oh, we don't care if she wears a pink sweater. You know, it doesn't, you know. Right. Yeah. You, you know, it, didn't, it just didn't matter. And then all of a sudden, it really mattered. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. Thank God. How do you think the fans are going to react to Twin Peaks tw- 2017 without spoiling anything? No spoilers. What, yeah. is your, what is your gut feeling about... In a couple st- words, yeah, without <laughs> spoils, without getting you in trouble. What I
9: like, the world doesn't. You know what hmm. I mean. I don't really right. know. Um, and also, David didn't like hand out scripts to all of us. Wow. So I know what I do in it. Yeah. And that's all I know. Right. You know? Yeah. I personally feel, though way I like, kind of feel my way through life. Um, what David ended up. Writing for me was amazing.
4: Hmm.
9: It was it was wonderful. Oh, I was awesome. so excited and challenged and nervous and thrilled. And and that's you know. And we had a great time doing it. And we just you know it, it was a bumpy ride getting there. And but once we got there, we just and hugged, and he's like, it's great. Be happy,
4: oh, you know. Man.
9: And he said that he loved doing it so much. He said if people like the show, that he would do more. Oh, that would now be David can change his mind, as we know, you know. Yeah. But he said the hardest part is writing it. It's just really buckling down and getting mm. it written. He said. But you know, Sherilyn, it, you know, he's like, you never know, you never know, and that's the truth. Yep. Right. You don't you know. know. Yeah. Right. So you have no. It's a, it's a throw of a dice. They could love it, they could hate it. But he loved doing it so much. He said if they love it, I would do more.
4: That's I'm like something. That's oh, great. That's, that's awesome. <laughs>
1: That was the real Audrey Horn, Sherilyn Fenn, we had in the studio some time ago right here on White Sands' premiere Twin Peaks radio show, and I am your host, the Blue Rose of Radio, Scott Ryan. Time's about 5 a.m., and I could use a refill on my coffee, I haven't seen my secretary for a while. I'm sure nothing bad has happened to her. She was um, out filing some papers by her uh, filing cabinet. And, you know, I'm sure she just maybe alphabetizing things. And I think everything's fine. I have a letter here that wants to hear my prayer. That's all anyone ever hears. I can't quite read the name. It's like from Fred Blug or Frog Bug or Fred Frog Bug. So, I don't know who wrote this letter, but they really want to hear my prayer. I tell you, we'll get to it. We just have a lot of guests today on the show. Now, we have a very special guest, a Joshua Minton from something called the Red Room Podcast. Not sure what a podcast is. I'm going to guess that he broke his arm and they're putting the cast in some sort of a pod that goes around the arm to fix it. I can't say, i never heard of such a thing, but I guess I'm interested to find out about something called a skeleton key of Season 3 of Twin Peaks. Here is Josh Minton.
2: And so you've been doing this skeleton key. Can you tell us how this came about and maybe explain for people who don't know what a skeleton key is?
18: Yeah, well, so first of all, it explains absolutely nothing. (laughs) You're not going to come here and find out. Any of the mysteries, look, I'm not John Thorne, I'm not Scott, I, I, don't, I don't look at it as critically probably as most people do, you guys included with that, Dave Bushman, for sure. But, you know, what What I do very well in my own uh, professional life is business analysis. So I take complex data sets and I make them simple so that, you know, even a CEO <laughs> could understand it, uh, which, you know, that's a, it's a, a small skill set, right? So when I got to episode or part three uh, of this return, and that was the, the episode with the uh, Purple Lodge or whatever we're calling it, right? Mm. I thought, boy, I wish I had a cockpit with which I could see where uh, Mark Frost's narrative is being deconstructed and then reconstructed by Lynch, as he you know, builds these scene sets for us. So I set out to uh, create exactly that, a tool for myself to try and understand what exactly was was going on in the show. Yeah. Cool. So we can start from there. And so if you will, and it's very hard to describe this thing uh, with words when you don't have it on the screen, but I'll do my best. If we could just take a black rectangle in your mind and imagine that you had a, uh, a mixing board Okay. And uh, picture David Lynch and Mark Frost standing over this mixing board. And then, you know, I'm thoroughly convinced that Mark Frost wrote a linear script to this show oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then handed it, you know, to David Lynch and said, do what you're going to do. Uh, the only caveat is I have the final word because I've already published a book that takes place after the show. And there's going to be another one that comes out to that because you right. need two last words when it comes to David Lynch. Right. <laughs> uh, so I I love this story already, right? And the idea that Lynch is going to take it, maybe throw out 20% of the script. I I, I don't know, you know, you just got to allow for that when it comes to David Lynch. He's going to second guess himself and change as he's actually filming things. So, uh, you know, with that in mind, uh, we've got a completely deconstructed linear script that's essentially been Pulp Fiction, right? I think that's, A consensus in the community now is that we've got multiple timelines, fractured scenes, uh, loops that are going on within the same scene, just crazy, crazy things going on. So how can we possibly put our arms around this thing? Well... My approach was to go part by part and break it down in terms of narrative, right? So you know m- my my history and training comes from a writing school. So I deeply appreciate Mark Frost's ability to kind of rein in David Lynch when it comes to story. and and i I do think we're telling a very, very rich story right here that's multifaceted. I mean, if if I had to put a literary reference to it, I would say the closest thing is probably James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Wow. Um, it, it, it really is a work of art on a scale that's never been shown on television before. Um, and, and the vitriol and some of the community is, uh, is testament to that. Right. So the idea of just breaking it down by narrative. So if we just take the first part, if we can all remember back to that first part, and remember the first scene was Cooper sitting with the firemen or the giant, as we knew him then they're listening to that old, old style phon- phonograph. Right. Yeah. yeah, And that was that was scene one. It kicked off. So that's a narrative. Cooper, I, in my mind, I'm like, Cooper escapes. That's a narrative. And it turns out that as of the airing of part 13, we've now seen three hours, 20 minutes and 42 seconds of that story of wow. Cooper escaping.
2: <laughs> yeah. Isn't
18: that so something? just consider that. That's amazing. That's like, you know, uh, a fire walk with me and a half
4: yeah. that we've seen
18: of Cooper coming back from the Red Room. So You know, we didn't even see the main storyline of that part one until about 32 minutes into the episode, which was the woman dying in Buckhorn and all of the things that happened. I mean, that was 21 minutes and 12 seconds out of that entire episode. But, yeah, we didn't even see it until halfway through. Mm. So... Just juxtaposing those two things, you can see how David Lynch has completely obfuscated what the main storylines are in the show. And if you didn't have a tool like this, you would be almost lost at sea, like tossed around the ocean, just hoping that these images would coalesce into some type of meaning. Well, I don't like to do that. (laughs) So I like to apply as much analysis as we can. Like I'm not trying to figure out what's going on. I'm certainly not – uh, saying that this is an authority on what the mysteries are, or what the, you know, the, even the secrets are in the show. But I do believe that we can, as a community, agree that this is the story being told in this scene, and then we can look at it over time to see how it changes and evolves, and and sometimes merges and gets dropped.
0: We will be right back after these
1: messages. In a world of Twin Peaks podcasts. Only one
3: show is going where no podcast
12: has gone before.
1: Welcome to Dear Meadow Radio,
5: the movie.
12: You were expecting someone else?
1: With more thrills.
17: This one's coming from J. Edgar.
1: More chills.
9: The downer you are!
1: And more spills. Yeah, yeah, all the audio
12: it's not that the file is lost, it's that the file was never even saved.
1: And celebrity guest stars.
2: Is that is that kind of how the book was produced? Hey Mark, I got one piece of dice for you. Yeah. are to get a life, buddy. You going to get a life. <laughs>
1: Dear Meadow Radio, the movie, coming someday.
9: Hi, I'm Sherilyn Fenn, and you're listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. White Sands Radio.
2: Producer and writer Bob Angles, who co wrote Firewalk with me. You know,
17: I was you know, working on the show. You know, and that really was my first uh, TV experience. I don't know. David and I got along great. As Dave would say, I can Mike. He asked me to, if I'd like to write a script with him, but it wasn't Twin Peaks. I think it was, I think we started In Heaven or Dream of the Bovine. I'm not sure which one we started. And we'd work at David's house. You know, one day I think he came from a meeting with uh, CB Two Thousand or whatever that company's name was, Mister yeah. Monsieur and he said, "We're going to write a Twin Peaks movie."
2: Cool. And we just started. Wow.
17: So we just jumped in, and it sort of turned into what it, you know, what it is. It's a, you know, prequel and sequel. You yeah. Know? That's kind of the idea that it would cover everything, totally. you know, before and after, which which kind of does. Yeah, so, it does. But I think he didn't feel like he was done with the series. It was my guess. You right. Know, back on it. And so we just, so, so, you know, he came in, we'd we'd sit in the living room and he came in and said, uh, uh, let's go. So we started, you know, we sort of went where we went. Do you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) We'd have an idea of something. It wasn't so much that we were dealing with a specific issue as that we just thought there's lots of loose ends to wind up. it really a case of things just evolving. Say, let's start here. Let's get that. You get all the regulars in, everybody has a scene. And then the first, Couple of drafts. Everybody was in it, and I mm. think when we shot it, when David shot it, everybody had a scene. And then we we cut lots of stuff out, or David did. You know, right. the first, and the first draft was huge. The very first draft was. You know, it's ginormous. Yeah, you know, I, I bet. My guess is that, that that first draft was probably 180 pages, something like wow.
2: that. And I think that I think uh, the first cut of the film was like five hours. So it's like you could have had like two films with with all the material you guys had. Yeah, yeah. And I think David
17: at one point wanted to do an intermission and then whoever was, uh, I think it was Bob Rainey who was the the money guy behind this part of it in America said, no, we're not, you can't do that because it. Uh, we got to be able to show this movie, you know, five times in a day or whatever
2: yeah. it is. Did you read Jennifer Lynch's Secret Diary of Laura Palmer preparing to write the script?
17: No, no. Oh, yeah. uh-uh.
18: uh-huh.
2: Wow, well, I'm actually impressed because that, there's definitely things in there that feel like it's from the diary. We
17: all knew what was going to be in the diary. But no, uh-uh. I mean, it, you know, it all comes from David. Yeah. All the same source. Yeah, but they kind of match up, don't they? I guess.
2: You know, Cooper originally in the first uh, draft, he was supposed to solve the Teresa Banks case, or he was investigating it, and then it got switched over to Chris Isaac, and I'm sure you get this asked all the time, but I thought I'd approach it as if. Kyle McLaughlin had decided not to do the, the movie at all. Do you think Chris Isaac would have taken on more Cooper role of like, oh, talking to Albert and Cole and, and being in Lord's Dream and saying, don't take the ring? Could you have seen Chris Isaac having a bigger role in the film?
17: Oh, yeah. You know, Kyle didn't at first didn't want to do the movie, as, as I recall. And we said, well, then uh, Chris Isaac will. <laughs> you know, it's pretty simple. Right. And somewhere in the course of getting everything ready to go, Kyle reconsidered. So we, that, that that made it a change, which was kind of cool. But that was completely shielded.
2: I heard an interview and I, and I don't know if you can clarify it more, but you had mentioned about David Bowie's Agent Jeffries and his purpose, part of his purpose as creating this character was to kind of help Kyle Cooper get back into the film as a transition. Can can you talk any more about that?
17: I think that was part of it. It was a way to get him back in, a, in the movie. I don't recall anything other than that uh, David's assistant, Debbie Chutnik, uh, would always come in when we were writing. She'd always come in and, and joke about uh what part david bowie was going to have in the movie <laughs> so then we so then we had a part for him that's yeah, pretty
2: good part. though it's a good part <laughs> yeah, yeah well yeah he was great he yeah. was a very nice guy
17: i don't know how we landed on that scene and like i said that it was really that kyle wasn't going to do it and, and then he decided to do it so we but that kind of helped. That kind of makes it cool.
2: The Angels were never in the first or second draft of the screenplay. I wondered if you could tell us about how um, they got added to the film.
17: We talked a lot about redemption of Laura. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's where the Angels came from, is that that idea to lift her up, literally.
2: So your wife had a part. Uh, she, uh, she she did several things in the the original series, and she did stuff in the uh, in the film. You know, she's the waitress. In the Great Northern. Trudy, I believe,
17: yeah. Yeah, she's Trudy, yeah.
2: yeah. And I would always write when I do a script that
17: I would always <laughs> write a scene in the Great Northern. It was wow. kind of an inside joke for yeah, everybody, you know, and say You know, they'll meet at the Great Northern, and she's a (laughs) wonderful actress, but, you know, she does musical comedy. uh,
2: Recently, uh, reading uh, the new issue of Blue Rose Magazine, where you talked to Scott Ryan, and you mentioned that she was the one that came up with Let's Rock on the windshield. Uh, Yes. I think was brilliant.
17: She would always say "Corstel" all the time. Wow. When they were doing that. Yeah, it's her idea.
2: That, I mean, that's so brilliant to actually go back to a few words that the little man from another place said in a dream. And she remembered that and, and actually decided to incorporate that. And of course, we as a viewer are the only ones that really know that supernatural meaning. But yeah, you'll have to right. tell her how, how incredible that it was that she added oh, that. I will. Yeah.
17: You know, she'd also, Michael Anderson, you know, the guy who played. The,
2: Yeah, little man from the place.
17: Most of the time when you see him on screen, my wife Jill is somewhere just off camera feeding him the backwards lines. Oh, wow. A lot of the stuff where he's, like, looking up, he's actually listening to
1: Jill. ¶¶ And that was Bob Engels, co-writer of Fire Walk With Me, you have just heard on KTPU, White Sands Radio. Yeah! Um, I don't mean to be distracted, I just felt like I smelled some burning ash of some sort in here i hope everything's fine but you know this is radio and we have to go on and have no problems and yes yes the phones are lit up begging me for my prayer i'm gonna play it i'm looking for it all right we're gonna hear it but until then let's talk with john Carroll lynch who directed harry dean stanton in the film lucky
0: What's the matter, huh? President Roosevelt escaped. Yeah. What are you talking about? Presidents. Which one? Roosevelt. Yeah, which one? No, my tortoise, President Roosevelt. He escaped.
9: How does a hundred-year-old tortoise escape?
0: I left the gate open when I went to check the mail.
9: Where's your mailbox,
0: You're <laughs> I saw him eyeing that gate the other day. He had to have timed it out perfectly. I searched our entire neighborhood. Did you search your entire yard? (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about his best friend here. Thank you, Lucky. You're welcome, Howard.
2: How did David Lynch get involved in this project? He was recommended by, you won't be surprised, by uh, Harry himself.
19: (laughs) (laughs) Who who was going to play Howard. He came up with David's name, and we all agreed that that was a great idea. Found out if he could do it, and he was in the midst of post-production of Twin Peaks. But... His love for Harry uh, really, you know, paid off for us because he was willing to find uh, the time we needed in a very busy time for him to uh, to act in the film, and he came so prepared and so ready to play Howard. Uh, it was a it was a he was, he was very respectful
17: and just
19: basically treated it as as any actor. I think you would imagine he would want to have on a set.
8: Yeah. Was it kind of surreal to be directing David Lynch? Or did you have a moment of, this is kind of weird? Uh,
12: I didn't ever have a,
19: I didn't ever have like an out yeah. of body like, <laughs> moment. It was, it came, it came late in the, it uh, came late in the, in the schedule. So in some ways I was I was more comfortable with the role I was taking on as being a director. And David was so open to the direction and so respectful that it didn't ever feel uh, uncomfortable. He just treated it as an actor, and I treated it as a director. And uh, if he did have any problems so with what I was doing on the set, he didn't mention it on the day. Uh, I also think that um, you know he had his hands full as a as an actor. He had a lot of material in a short period of time. So. Yeah he was focused on that and uh, i'll tell you you know there were many times the process where in those two days it, we really needed him to be rock
4: solid and he was
8: don't want to ruin a thing but he has a little speech and it it was very powerful like yeah. uh, and david lynch and and yeah. at the same time
2: it was, it was funny to have something that was very meaningful but also have some comical <clears throat> to it yeah positively lynchian really uh, yes uh, it really was
19: the humor inside this very moving thing speech was written so beautifully and he was really Excited to say it. I mean, he really he called up Logan after he said yes. And he said, I just love that speech. I love that about the tortoise. It's great. Oh. It really feels good to be able to have an
2: opportunity on that. The friendship between Harry's character and Lynch's character came very natural. I mean, it just you could feel that chemistry and that friendship. Came right off the screen. It really did. Yeah. I, I just loved it. And even the whole bar. Well, was...
19: because they know each other, they know yeah. each other so well as people. It was a great short I've I've had the opportunity to play with, uh, play with friends and to play friendships with close friends on film and on stage and there's nothing like having that shorthand in those years between people it, it's it's very difficult to establish that uh, so quickly with people that you don't know so it was a it was a big leg up uh, the warmth that David and Perry have for each other and and how that had exhibited itself when they were acting those two
2: parts it's done 18 days is that right it was like 18 days you you filmed this that's correct 18 yeah. days. 18 days. Yeah, 18 days. So was there any memories that you could share with us? Well, a great David memory was when we were working on, uh, there's a a fight,
19: an argument at the bar that uh, David participates in. And uh, uh, Harry was having difficulty uh, getting to these run of lines that he was, he turns the argument on to Elaine, who's played by Beth Grant. he was really struggling getting there. He would get to that point and it would just fall off the table. He just could not remember that beat. He was so frustrated. Just, why am I even saying this? And <laughs> I explained what I thought, the reason why, and he did what I've done a thousand times, which is turned to my fellow actor, in this case, with David, for leverage against the director. And, mm-hmm. uh, and he turned to David and he goes, David, do you understand why I'm doing this? And he, and he said, yes, I do, Harry, I understand.
4: Uh... And
19: he goes, well, why? And uh, And David turned to me and I... Waited for a minute, and I said, no, go ahead. And said, go ahead, and say whatever you want to say, and he, he turned to Harry and said, it's not my place to say, Harry.
4: Huh. wow. So he, was,
19: he was just like, I'm gonna let you direct this." Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> awesome. Good. And uh, I really appreciated that.
2: That is really
4: cool. Yeah, that that's is awesome. cool. It's
19: a really special picture. It, it is a movie that, that features Harry Dean Stanton in uh,
0: an exquisite performance. We will be right back after these messages.
3: Hello, friends. This is Francis Albert, and it's Christmas time again. If you find yourself in Las Vegas this holiday season, make sure to stop into the Silver Mustang Casino and Lounge, where you'll find all the games of chance
18: and skill to keep you warm during those cold desert nights. And you never know, Mrs. Jackpots is always looking for her man. So stop into the Silver
3: Mustang Casino and Lounge.
11: You won't regret it, baby.
3: Oh, the weather outside is frightful. But the fire is so delightful. There's only one place to go. Silver Mustang Lounge and Casino. Dooby-dooby-doo.
8: He's your favorite father from next door, who is light on
2: his feet and has a voice that is out of this world. Leland Palmer is back and ready to sing all his favorite hits. Back and ready. And enjoy his frantic rendition of Mersey Dots. Oh, Mersey
5: Dots, and Nosy a little Lamsie Divey, a kiddly Divey, too, wouldn't you? You
8: think you've heard Leland Palmer, but you haven't heard him like this. With his exclusive
2: track featuring longtime friend Ben Horn. Available on two EPs
8: while supplies last on BOB Records.
2: Leland Palmer is now booking for birthday parties, bar mitzvahs, and holiday parties. To order with COD or credit card, please call
8: toll-free 1-800-Leland-Palmer. That's 1-800-572-5637. And to save on shipping and handling charges, send nineteen ninety five to P.O. Box 262, Pearl Lakes.
2: Get, get happy.
4: happy! Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy. Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready
9: for the judgment day. Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson, and... You're listening to Twin Peaks on Rock. White Sands Radio.
2: So We are on the phone with Sabrina Sutherland, executive producer of Twin Peaks The Return. Hi, Sabrina. Hello. <laughs> nice to be here. So when did you actually meet uh, David Lynch, Like, and when did you get maybe your relationship grow to the point that you, maybe you were a lot closer?
7: Well, I mean, I met him on the second season, but, yeah. you know, and I met him, I uh, obviously worked with him on these other shows, But I was just in kind of a different capacity. I think maybe lost highway interacting with him a little bit more just because I'd be on set and I had—I was then production supervisor. So I went up from production coordinator to production supervisor. I was doing a little bit more work on the show and having to deal with him a little bit more. And I'd be the person he'd have to, you know, if he wanted a, a crane or something like that, something that's outside of the norm. I was the person because I was controlling the budget and Ah. everything. And so he would say, hey, can we get a Technocrane today? Can we we work that in? And that would be me.
2: Neat. That is really something. Yeah, And you were involved with uh, Twin Peaks, The Missing Pieces. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, your involvement with that was? Sure.
7: So in order to do The Missing Pieces, myself, I guess, a co- and a couple other people, we went to the storage where all the film was and went through all the boxes huh. to figure out what was in the boxes. So I kind of created a budget to see if it was feasible to do this wow. and you know what it would cost and then find out what exactly there was. And of course, Eureka uh, went through and was able to catalog all of the, the film that was there. David went through to see everything and see what was left and what could actually be used, what was considered something that wasn't already used. Mm. Um, because Noriko hadn't worked on the original either, on Fire With Me.
4: Yeah.
7: And Dean uh, went through all the, the sound to see what was there. Let's see, just kind of overseeing the editorial process
4: yeah. of
7: getting all of that stuff together and working with MK2, who has the film, and getting it to CBS. You know, these scenes are the scenes that are there. There's nothing that's missing. It is the complete <laughs> film, and whatever is not included in there was not shot. Wow. So these these really are all of the missing scenes. There There's nothing there. and. You know, we weren't sure. You know, people were thinking maybe it would be thirty minutes, but to be an hour and a half—that's really great.
2: Yeah, it's you like know? almost like a, another movie, really. Yeah.
7: And the way David put it together was just so brilliant. I that thought was. it was like its own film, in it, you know, in its own way. Definitely. Which is pretty neat.
2: And so now here we are with the new series. Am I right? It was like four or five years ago that you got involved with with the, the return of Twin Peaks.
7: I got involved towards the end of 2012, I think. Wow. Wow. You know, where I started doing stuff, but David and Mark had been working prior to that and writing. Yeah. So I came in and David explained to me exactly what they were thinking, what they had written down, and then kind of what they were hoping to do. And I had to create a budget and a schedule based on that of what kind of like a projection of what it possibly could be so that people would say okay, you know, whether or not they would want to uh, support something like that. There was not only a lot of work but I should say too with post. Again we were doing it like a feature film, so you know, we couldn't start on the process of music or mixing until David edited everything, until everything was done being edited. You know, you just didn't know where everything was gonna be, so you can't you don't want to do it twice. Yeah. That's so you know, he went through all of that before then he would go in get all the music, do the mixing. And then because we just didn't have enough time to do everything, we were color timing at night.
4: Wow. So
7: David and would be, you know, we'd be working during the day, and then David and I would go to the um, post facility at night to do the color correction. And that, again, was being done as one big thing. We weren't starting to make tapes to be sent to Showtime until everything was done. Then yeah. once everything was done, we started making everything. You have um, Dwayne Dunham, who was the main editor, yeah. and some of the other editors who were working with him were assembling. As footage came in, they assemble it while we were shooting.
4: Ah.
7: Uh-huh. So they had an initial kind of outline based on the script for David when he got to the editing process. And then David started working with Dwayne, and that went on for... Uh, a while and, and then the editorial department, Dwayne left and the editors left and then David went back through and was editing.
4: Wow. wow.
7: he continued and going through different things and then um, then
2: we were finally done with editing. Wow. But everything was looked at by David. <laughs> and you when you say David did he actually was he actually sitting at the computer and like cutting and I mean like doing yes. any, Wow, that is impressive. I mean, I knew he kind of did that when back in the day of davidlynch.com when he had his own projects, but it's impressive to see a big project like this that he kind of took over and that is really something.
7: No, he did uh, he, like I said, he he worked harder on this than anybody else.
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah, anybody
7: definitely. Else, he, you know, 100%, he was involved with everything and everything again, had to go through him.
2: He came up with his own uh, lipstick? <laughs> there was not the right shade of lipstick uh, for somebody? I think that's what it was. Maybe oh, it was for Diane? But
7: that was Laura Dur- So Laura came up with all kinds of ideas, and he, she and David together created the whole Diane look. Wow. You know, all the clothing, her wigs, her makeup, everything. And the two of them figured out exactly what that look would be. <laughs> and I think that's such an incredible collaboration. Yeah. Her character looks stunning.
2: And you got to be floor attendant Jackie in the casino. there. (laughs) How was that for you? How was that being an actor? I mean, all this time you've been behind the camera and now you're in front of the camera.
7: Oh, it was fun. It was so much fun. I mean, you know, people are so supportive. So it was good. David was, I don't know, testing me maybe or just (laughs) not sure, but he, he would throw things, change dialogue things like that, oh, really? things that are, yeah so uh-huh. for, for me not being an actor it was kind of you know hair raising because yeah. i was like oh no i can't even remember what i'm supposed to say now you're giving me something <laughs> else to say uh-huh. so um but it was all fun it was really great and the very first take kyle was dougie and i know kyle and When we're in the scene, I come up to him and talk to him, and he turned, and he spoke his line. And I think the first take, I just kind of stepped backwards because he was something I didn't recognize at all. He was so in that character. He's so good. He's so versatile and just really amazing in all the characters that he does in in Twin Peaks. I mean, I I really think he did a stellar performance. But um, when he hit me with that Dougie, I I didn't know what to say. I kind of stuttered. (laughs) And so then in the scene, I'm supposed to follow him down this corridor, kind of, and turn around a corner, and we're out of the shot. And so then Kyle looks at me and goes, oh, that's the first time you met Dougie, huh? (laughs) 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 Totally.
8: In the MA, you mentioned you were still working on Twin Peaks The Return.
7: Uh, Well, first let me just qualify one thing. So you guys know, and it's just, I guess, because of the way it's been promoted through Showtime, but the show is just Twin Peaks, uh-huh. and The Return is something that Showtime put on so that it could be distinguished in, like, the TV Guide or whatever, that it wasn't the original series, that it was the new series. Hmm.
4: Ah. Uh-huh. Yeah.
7: But it's, so, you know, it's just Twin Peaks. If we
2: got to ever see your, the script, which we all would love to see, Would it on the script, would it just say Twin Peaks?
7: Yeah, I think, I think it just says, let me see. I have a script right here. <laughs> let me look. <laughs> um... You know, to be honest, it doesn't even have a cover page.
8: Wow! Oh, that's secretive. That is something. Yeah.
7: So there is no cover page,
2: but it is just Twin Peaks. I think about that whole sweeping in the roadhouse, and I imagine that that wasn't in the script. I just imagine that like someone maybe was actually sweeping, and David was like, "Okay, let's let's just keep it going." And and can you share with that? Was that a, a scene that was just in? He was inspired to do. Did he have a lot of happy accidents?
7: That was something that he came up with. That it wasn't scripted, but it wasn't somebody was sweeping. Willie, who was doing the sweeping, worked on our crew. Wonderful guy. I think David asked him if I think he had it. It wasn't that David saw him. David had it in his head, his mind's eye of what he wanted to see, and he asked, hey, Willie, will you go over there and sweep? (laughs) And so Willie went over and swept, and just said, you know, just keep sweeping.
2: It was because of you, because of your hard work every day that we got this product. I know Lynch, and I know Frost, and so many other people were part of this, but it was also what you were doing every day that made this happen, so I want to say thank you so much for that.
9: Oh, well,
7: thank you for saying that, and you're welcome, and thank you guys for being the fans that you are. I know that the show wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for the fans. I know that. So we're all so grateful for the fans. So thank you guys.
1: And that was one of the nicest people in the world, executive producer of Twin Peaks, Sabrina Sutherland, here on our radio program, and it is 5.30 in the... Sir, sir, you can't be back in here. I mean, take a shower, dude. You've got some... Yeah, that's a real nice... I'm so, so glad you're doing your beatnik poetry this, here. This is not this a poetry no reading, sir. That's very Drink interesting, and I'm not thirsty, magazine. but I appreciate The horse is the white of the eyes and dark within. Oh, we're still going with the poem. This is great. Uh, oh, oh, a head massage. I'm not really and in the need for... Wild. Hey, man, clip those things, will <laughs> cool. you? Take some fingernail clippers to the... Hey, ah, ah, hey, hey, hey. And, and still, hand. with the poem? This is the how I go? Come right on. Ah, ah. Hey, come on. Please, please one, just hold on. i got to say one thing. Can I please just say one thing to my listeners? This is important. Just, oh, hiya. Uh, listen, thank you. I just want to say if you're a Twin Peaks fan make sure you go out and subscribe to the new subscription of the Blue Rose magazine at bluerosemag.com we have the 2018 subscription for issues 5 6 7 8 available now it's the log lady subscription and you can go up uh, oh, this is the water i get it i get got uh, Blue Rose bluerosemag.com <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
6: White
2: Sands Radio. Hi, Mark. Hi, guys. How are you? Oh, Oh, great. great. You know, you had mentioned to us in the past how uh, books are kind of like gifts that you leave by the, by the side of the road. This book really is a gift, I just, I, I love it, I know so many fans love it. You answered so many questions that we've had for over 25 years, thank you so much for this book.
19: Well, you're welcome. I'm I'm glad you, you saw it that way, I felt we'd left a lot of things unanswered and things that we didn't have time to address in the return, and this was a way I thought
2: to uh, to bridge that gap. What did you most enjoy about uh, writing the final dossier? I think I think it was the chance
19: to kind of close the book on a lot of the characters that we'd um, not had a a chance to catch up with and put to rest some lingering questions about certain characters that I think had haunted viewers for a long time. (laughs)
2: Yes, (laughs) definitely. And so I wondered, how did this book come about? You know, we we had the the secret history of Twin Peaks, and did you know right away, hey, I'm going to do a second book? Or how how did this kind of fit in when when you first started thinking about writing a book?
19: Well, my thinking evolved after we'd written the scripts and before we got into production, I knew I wanted to write at least one book, but then I realized I wanted to write two. I wanted to go back in time and weave a a kind of in-depth mythological history for the region and the people and fold Twin Peaks into a larger America and context, so that became The Secret History. And then um, I felt I wanted to more specifically, uh, as I just described, bring you up to date on the people that were in danger of kind of being left behind or forgotten.
2: With an epistolary book, can you ever really trust the author? Can we really trust uh, Tamron Preston for what she has to say?
19: Well, you might be able to, to trust her a little bit more. This isn't technically epistolary in the way that the first book was. Hmm. This is an FBI agent's case files. True. So her version of things may be inherently more dedicated to rigorous fact-finding. Yeah. I wanted to apply that standard to her investigation into these various people.
2: The secret history of Twin Peaks can kind of stand on its own, but I like how you kind of weaved in this agent.
19: Yeah, and I think uh, also that the two books act as... Uh, companion pieces and maybe sort of bookends for the series. I think it's a a fun way to look at the, the Twin Peaks experience through different media.
8: Definitely. After finishing the book, I texted Ben right afterwards saying, that is the cherry on the cake. You know, that is the frosting... On the K, it was just so good. Um, So good. And I was like, Mark Frost is the heart and soul of Twin Peaks.
19: (laughs) I did uh, the analogy of of this coming as sort of the dessert course. The end of a long and multi-layered meal felt pretty apt.
2: Can you share with us the origins of how the new series came about? Started with my calling David and saying,
19: I think I might have a way to get back to Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. And we had a lunch in August of 2012 at Musso and Frank's and enough came out of the conversation to pick up the thread and start following it we started talking on a regular basis, and nine months to a year, I think, before we actually started writing anything. But it was a lot of really fruitful discussion and laying the groundwork for what was to come, and that's how it all began.
2: And I think I heard you guys hadn't even thought about 25 years later, which I think us, us, all its us fans keep thinking, oh, we're getting close to 25 years, the, the show should come back, but you guys didn't even think about that, is that right? My recollection
19: is that one of the things we did first after deciding to pick it up was actually watch the final episode together. Huh. And you know, there's that moment where she turns to Cooper in the red room and, and says that line. And you know, that was certainly the moment when the spark plug ignited.
2: Isn't that sounds yeah, that's, that's cool. That's really cool. Is that was that the first time that you guys actually had sat down together to watch that last episode? Uh yes. Isn't that something? Isn't that wow. that is that is really something. You were recently at the Austin Film Festival. I think you shared something about the character Rodney's cut. Uh, Rod Mitchum.
19: It's a very simple story. he had been injured slightly injured during an onset accidental light it fell over and hit him just below his eye. I Actually, more on the cheekbone. They'd already shot some scenes with him. So David devised this way of figuring out why there would be a Band-Aid or a scar or, you know, the trace of him getting that injury. I thought that he came up with a hilarious way of doing it.
2: I'd heard that your dad actually shot his scenes before uh, through Skype before and maybe during pre-production. Is that right?
19: That's correct. I was back east visiting him. It was a, a little more than a month, maybe, or just about a month before we actually started production and we actually shot it on Skype with David in LA and my dad in upstate New York and I was there and my brother Scott was there and my son Travis so we actually uh, had uh, all three generations together Travis was the, the production assistant and Scott was helping with the lighting and it was uh, kind of fun.
2: What a great moment that you guys had but also for I mean us fans just to be able to see Doc Hayward again I mean that was really a, a great scene. Very special.
19: Yeah I, I felt really good about that scene and spent a lot of time getting it right.
2: There's talk You'd be open to another season, possibly, of Twin Peaks. Well, no. What I said was that I'm considering it, okay.
19: and that's what you would normally do. I haven't spoken to anybody about it, but you know, I'm mulling it over.
2: And that also goes for any any chance of another Twin Peaks novel. I mean, these 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 last two have been great. We've really yeah. enjoyed them. We'd love to have more. Yeah, the, I, I
19: guess that would come fall under the same category. You know, yeah. We'll we'll have to see where, where things go from here.
2: Of course. Well, you know, we hope this isn't the end, but if this was the end of Twin Peaks, this is a very satisfying ending. Yeah. And, uh, thank you, Mark. You're very welcome, guys, and great to talk with you again.
19: Uh, thanks to you and all the people in the Twin Peaks community for hanging in there for so long, and I uh, hope it's been a good ride.
6: White Sands Radio. When the twilight gone
4: Ah, and no songbirds are singing ah, when the twilight is gone ah, you come into my heart ah, and here in my heart you will stay while
2: I pray My prayer is to linger
4: with you at the end of the day, in a dream that's divine. blue
1: with the world far away and your
9: lips this is the water and
4: this is the well drink full and this
19: is the water and this is the well.
1: Drink full
4: at this hand. The horse is the wife.
0: Thank you, Scott Ryan, for hosting today's show and everyone who has joined us over this past year. I'm Jubal Brousseau from Counter Esperanto Podcast, you can find us on iTunes or whichever your favorite podcatcher app might be. And you can follow us on Twitter at C Esperanto.